Welcome to the show. I want to do something a little bit different with a series of conversations with some of the brightest, smartest liberty people I know who have widely divergent views on the debate over Israel and Palestine and what happened in the, in the Gaza Strip. And I want to challenge all of you to do something that most Americans can't do anymore, which is listen and engage and debate with, with views that are at polar ends of each other on this subject. And that's something that we could probably do here. So you're going to be hearing from various people with smart opinions, um, some of whom you'll love, some of whom you'll hate, some of whom hopefully change your mind and make you think a little bit more about this very difficult, maybe impossible issue that's happening in Israel. Greg. How's it going? Very well. Um, so, so you've you've uh, happily agreed to be part of this this project um, that I that I catched up where I want to talk to different smart people that I trust and know who have just very divergent views on on Israel versus Hamas, and more importantly, perhaps what what should we do about it? Um, and and I was sort of. Uh, in part inspired by a session that you did. We were just both in New York at the Atlas Network annual dinner, and you had a conversation with a mutual friend, Chris Rufer. And I was sitting there. Um, I, di I didn't know if that was supposed to be a debate or a conversation. It ended up being a conversation, but I was sitting there thinking, you know, one of the problems with debates is that it sort of supposes that it has to be a winner and a loser, and, and in a lot of ways, like our whole philosophy is, is a win-win philosophy. We, we think that people can come together and, and find common ground. And on those common points, they can, they can collaborate and do something that's, that's big and beautiful. And it seems like on this question, and actually all the questions now, we, it's, it's like um, you're either with me or against me, and, and you have to sort of choose a team. And I want to start off by reading a quote from one of your colleagues at the Objective Standard Institute, uh, Kaya Willis. Am I saying her name right? Yes. Uh, Osama bin Laden's letter to America trending on leftist TikTok exposed the problem with the current left versus right political spectrum. The way we look at politics now, one is either an evil racist authoritarian on one side or an evil racist authoritarian on the other side or somewhere in between. So many people feel politically homeless because we have been, we have been given the false alternative of choosing between terrible and terrible. And I know you've, uh, I've, I've actually heard you lecture on the political spectrum in the past, but it, it strikes me that um, this, this is one of those examples. And I know, I know you've opined on Israel, on Zionism, and I, I might read one of your tweets later, but uh, you have a very strong pro-Israel position. What, what is the basis for that? So the basis for it is essentially two things. <clears throat> Israel was formed explicitly for the purpose of becoming a rights-respecting, rights-protecting state. And it was formed for Jews to have a place where they could go and, and live and think and produce and, 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 and prosper. But it wasn't formed 
exclusively for Jews. It was formed so that Jews could have a place where they wouldn't be attacked and they could live, but also in Israel's founding documents, in its, in its constitution, it says that this is to be a place for all people, Jew and non-Jew alike, where uh, everyone will ha uh, have equal rights before the law, et cetera, et cetera. And I wrote an article titled Israel to be or not to be, where I get into the more detail on the founding of it and Ben Gurion's uh, uh, speeches around that time, um, which said essentially the same thing, that we want Arabs to be able to live here with us and live in peace. And uh, that was the intention of Israel. And since then, they've codified that same idea in, in more ways and, <clears throat> and made Israel a place where anyone can live and have his or her rights respected, whether you're you know, Muslim or, or Jewish or gay or straight or male or female, it doesn't matter. Your rights are going to be recognized and protected. Well, this is the essence of a civilized society. That's what it means for a society to be civilized, that, that, that rights are recognized and protected. Um, so that's the, that's the fundamental. And very often you'll hear people, including Jews, say that the reason that Israel has a right to exist is because, you know, God granted, in, in the Old Testament, God granted Israel to, to the Jews, or because uh, Israelis or Jews have ancestral, um, you know, history in, in the region uh, or the like. But the, the, these are not grounds for, um, for a, a, a people's right to have or maintain a state. You could, I mean, there are people in, uh, in North Korea have been there for uh, a very long time. Do they have a right to maintain a communist dictatorship jail because of that there? No. Rights don't come from, well, first of all, they don't come from God granting them to anyone. You, you can't even prove that God exists, much less that he has the capacity to grant somebody land. Um, so set that aside. But nor do rights come from, um, you know, the fact that you've been there for a long time or your people, your tribe is from this region. That has nothing to do with rights. The concept of rights is the recognition of the fact that in order for human beings to live as human beings, in order for us to act on the judgment of our mind, which is our basic means of living, we have to be free. We have to be free from the one thing that can stop us from doing that, and that's physical force. So to the extent that a society or, or a nation, <coughs> a government, a legal system, whatever you want to call it, to the extent that a government protects rights by banning force and enabling people to think and act and live together in, in, in harmony, by voluntary consent to mutual advantage, right? That is a civilized society. Israel is the only uh, state in the entire Middle Eastern North African region that has this characteristic. It's the only one that has anything close to this characteristic. And Israel isn't perfect. I mean, I, I could, you know, there are some socialist elements in, in some of their laws and they, you know, they have conscription and you can pick on a few things with Israel, but by and large, that's the difference, is, is rights-respecting, rights-protecting state versus the, the Arab and, and Muslim states over there whose charters or constitutions call for the annihilation of Israel and the Jews. Yeah. So it's, it's just a black and white difference. So I've, I've spent some, uh, I guess I've been to Israel three times, 
and some some fun history. I first went there with Glenn Beck um, when I was still at an organization called Freedom Works, and and we joined some some of the folks you know that that were both objectivists and libertarians to start a Tea Party in Tel Aviv, and and I I spent time um, in the West Bank looking at at some of the 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 emergency courts that are set up on the border to deal with with um, uh, Palestinians that that have murdered somebody and and I just have a lot of friends there so my my empathy and my sympathy is is with Israel because because I've spent a lot of time there um, but uh, you know as libertarians and objectivists in Israel they they could tell you all of the things that that Israel doesn't do right um, particularly when it comes to um, these socialist elements that that, that they perhaps inherited from uh, Dispora coming from the former Soviet Union or the Soviet Union at the time. The, and the question, I guess, is for those of us sort of fighting about this stuff, what, what should America's role be in this argument? Because I, and you can probably imagine I'm, I'm sort of a, a realistic non-interventionist and I think you're describing a lot of these these horrible regimes in the Middle East, and and I would argue, Al Iran Paul, that the United States, particularly in, in in countries like Iran, had some hand in giving power to the bad guys by trying to intervene and manipulate and and perhaps assume that 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 we could build these rights based democracies in countries that we don't really know anything about. So, so we've created some chaos, and I would, I would just always be skeptical about what we can do to fix such an intractable problem. Yeah, so my view is that America should do essentially two things. We should provide moral certainty and spiritual support to Israel and to every organization and, and, uh, and, and government on the planet that is fighting against uh, or f- fighting for some semblance of freedom relative to um, some some form of tyranny. Uh, so this would apply also to Ukraine versus Russia, this same kind of, of, of analysis. What we should say is it is morally right. I would love for American an American president to speak in these lines. It is morally right for people to be free, for people to uh, have their rights to life, liberty, property, and the pursuit of happiness recognized and protected by the government. Therefore, insofar as a, a government uh, or a nation is attempting to do that, that, to that extent, they are good. And to the extent that any nation or people are trying to invade and stop that nation from being that way, they are morally wrong, right? So in the case of Israel, you have uh, a, a state that does substantially recognize and protect its citizens and residents' rights and you have it being attacked by essentially a jihad movement that's, that, in my view, is, is not, there's nothing secular about any of this. They're, 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 as they were committing this assault on 10-7, they're running through yelling Aluha Akbar the whole time. This is, this is a religiously motivated assault on Israel, and it's, it, it, it's uh, these groups like uh, uh, Hamas and Hezbollah, they are proxies for uh, state sponsors of what they're doing. They really are. Iran and, uh, and Qatar and Saudi Arabia, as, as much as Saudi Arabia uh, seems to be friendly sometimes toward us, if you look at the history of what they've taught in their schools— um, and and the uh, extent to which they have supported various groups, including Hamas, 
um, it's, it's really ugly. So I think the first thing we should do is say, look, this is black and white. You said earlier, you know, sometimes people talk about, well, you're either on our side or on that side. And there, there is a sense in which black and white thinking is wrong. And that is if you are not naming a valid principle and then saying adherence to the valid principle is right and it's always right. I like to break things down to valid principles and black and white thinking and to do it correctly because that's where you get decisive in, in good ways. Israel is a rights protecting society. It just is relative to the others. It is, you, you, it's, you can't say it's perfect, but in, in a sense, relative to the others, it is perfect because it, it genuinely protects rights and they genuinely have no interest in doing that whatsoever. They just want to kill all of the Jews and wipe Israel off the map and they've made that clear. So our government should acknowledge that and say, because of this, Israel is 100% in the moral right. Not only do they have a right to defend themselves, they have a moral obligation to defend themselves and to eliminate Hamas completely, in my view, and, um, and, to, and to the extent that, that uh, innocents are killed in war, and they are, and they are to the extent that that happens, the moral responsibility for those innocents' death lies with Hamas and Hamas's enablers and supporters. So it, it lies with Iran. And frankly, I think it, it lies also with the uh, American and Western intellectuals who are pretending that Hamas has any moral ground to stand on here whatsoever. So I, I would extend that, that moral responsibility literally to anyone who is providing uh, spiritual support of any kind to, to Hamas. But back to the government. So we should, we should absolutely say that, that Israel is in the moral right. Should we be funding uh, and aiding Israel militarily in, in this fight? I think we should. And I know this is for a lot of people in sort of the free mar you know, the freedom movement, libertarian movement, and, and the like, this can be controversial. But here's my thinking. Uh, Hamas is not just looking to kill all the Jews uh, and, and uh, you know, wipe out Israel uh, and, and, you know, bring Palestine from the river to the sea and all, the, all, all of their talking points. They are after a global caliphate. That is what they're after. And they say this regularly. Hamas's leaders say it. The Iranian mullahs say it. Uh, Iranian leaders have said it. Uh, the Saudi Arabian, uh, you know, constitution is the Koran which calls for a global caliphate. So all, all of these uh, Islamic uh, theocracies and the proxies of these Islamic theocracies are after a genuinely global caliphate where everyone submits to Allah. So in my view, this is an absolute global threat. It's a threat to the United States. And uh, there's no question in my view that we need to end this and end it now. If we had ended this, a decade or two ago, when we had plenty of evidence that there was a global an effort toward a global caliphate underway, we wouldn't have this problem today. And so, does it get ugly and messy when you have to end regimes that sponsor jihad? Yeah, a lot of people have to die when that happens. If you don't do it, guess what happens? You get a 10-7. And by the way, right after 10-7, when all of the American uh, intellectuals and, and wokists were saying, well, you know, they have some good grief, they have some grievances, this, that, and the other, and all they want is to have some, their land back, et cetera, et cetera. The, uh, the Hamas leaders and the imams and mullahs around the world were saying, and you can find these guys speaking online, they're saying, 
this is just the beginning. We're going to do this again and again and again until Israel is gone. So what do you do? You, when that is your situation, there's only one thing you can do. Eliminate the threat so that we can get on with living as human beings. And this, by the way, I'll just last thing I'll say, I know I'm going on a little bit long here, but <clears throat> Palestinians, Arabs, Muslims, they're all people. They're all human beings. And they have a right to live and think and produce and prosper just like the rest of us do. We're all, rights are recognitions of the factual requirements of human life in a social context. That's what they are. So these people do have rights, but they forfeit their rights if they attack and try to kill people because the whole purpose of rights is to enable us to live. So when someone, uh, be it a, an individual or a group or, or a nation, decides that they are going to become, in effect, wild animals trying to kill other human beings, that very fact forfeits their rights. And so when you, when you go in and kill a Hamas agent who just invaded and, and, and raped and pillaged and burned and destroyed uh, Israelis, you're not violating his rights. He doesn't have rights. He forfeited his rights by his, his own choice. And so we've got to really keep clear in our minds what rights are, who has them, why they have them. And then if we can eliminate this threat and, and, and get the jihadists out of the picture, then Palestinians and Arabs and, and Muslims can come together and live together as human beings peacefully, which is exactly what we should all be trying to make happen. At Kibbe on Liberty, freedom is a lifestyle 24-7, something you live and breathe and wear every day. If that describes you, you need the very best Liberty swag in the market today. Just like this shirt I happen to be wearing. Go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and check out our exciting merch. You too can love Liberty and look cool. So it's it, pretty obvious. Like I'm, I'm not a expert on the region and I'm, I'm not an expert on Hamas. I've, I've, I've been a sort of amateur student just because I was there and, and had a chance to just talk to people like what's going on and and what's your perspective on this stuff? But it, it, it seems sort of obvious that the, the grotesque things that Hamas did with that attack was specifically designed to provoke a response. Yeah. And I assume that's exactly what they want. And they also probably know and have demonstrated since that the, the people that will die in this process in Palestine are not, in my mind at least, not the same people that actually committed the acts of violence. And that, that's where it gets sticky for me because I, I think that um, I, I don't want to be a collectivist about this. And, and just from an American perspective, I don't want personal responsibility for all of the things that my government does in foreign policy. I didn't vote for it. I don't support it. Um, and I don't actually have a way as an individual to rein in my government when it does immoral things. So the, the stickiness in, in the argument, your argument is so clear, but, but what do we do about the collateral damage? Um, because I think, I think there are innocents, the, the people that start wars, the people that, that instigated this violence in Israel, by and large, won't pay the price for it. It'll be, it'll be somebody else. It'll be third parties that get stuck in the middle. Well, I hope that the people who started and are responsible for this war will pay the price for it. Uh, and and, and I th that, that's why I advocate that we support Israel both spiritually and militarily. 
Um, I think they need to pay the price for it, not just because they committed evil, but because they will do it again. And if you don't stop them, then they will do it again. So I think there's no question that um, that that you know that, that Hamas has to be eliminated, Hezbollah has to be eliminated, and frankly, I think the regime in the, the Islamic regime in Iran has to be eliminated. But we can talk about that as a separate point if you want to. As for collateral damage, collateral damage is an aspect of war. And what we're talking about here, to just be very direct, is the death of innocence. Is a four-year-old boy or girl in in um, in you know Gaza innocent? And if he or she is killed, is that the death of an innocent? Absolutely, it is. But I would put it this way: um, so let's something like uh, ten thousand uh, people have been uh, killed in Gaza since this started. So more more than that is what the report is. I say every one of those people were murdered by Hezbollah. That's who did it. Hezbollah killed them. Israel might have been the proximate, so an Israeli bomb or an Israeli bullet might have been the proximate cause of the death of an individual citizen there. But the fundamental cause is the organization, the state, the state sponsors, etc., who necessitated this retaliatory force. This is all about the law of causality. Something caused all of this to happen. What is that thing that caused it to happen? It was an assault on the part of Hamas, supported by Iran, and that's what shot everything into motion. That's the fundamental cause of all of this. And and then the Israelis come back and they go, well, you're attacking us. We are going to have to defend ourselves. The Israelis do not indiscriminately kill civilians. In fact, they are going out of their way not to do that. And everybody knows this, even the people who pretend that they don't know that they're doing that, because it's clear as day that that's what they're doing. They're, they're making announcements. We have to bomb this area. Please leave. And then Hamas aims guns at people and say, if you leave, we're going to kill you, because Hamas doesn't care about the lives of the Palestinians, because they're not in this to have a state where people's lives and rights are respected. They're in this to wipe out Israel because that's what their charter tells, that's what they came into existence to do. So we just have to bear in mind the fact that every single innocent life taken in this war is the moral responsibility of Hamas, the states that sponsor it, and the American so-called intellectuals who either support them directly, which some do, or pretend that there's some grievance there that's legitimate, when they know there's not, because Everyone who's paying attention has a moral responsibility at this point to at least have read Hamas's charter. You read their 1988 charter. They tried to change it uh, several years ago to make it sound less uh, less direct, but it didn't do much good because it still says we need to wipe Israel off the map. They, the, the organization came into existence to do that for Allah. That's, that's in their charter. So you, we just can't hamstring Israel and say, you can't defend yourselves because, for instance, they've got these, uh, you know, Hamas has built tunnels under hospitals. And um, what are you going to do? Say, well, you can't bomb the hospitals? No, of course they have to bomb the hospitals. What they do is what Israel does. And I think they're more than fair in doing this. They say, please get out of that hospital. We need to come in and deal with it. And by the way, <laughs> there's, think of the confession when the Israeli, when the IDF starts approaching the hospital, and people say, they're, they're, you know, it's a siege on a hospital. Well, they could just walk into the hospital if the, if the hospital didn't have Hamas members in there saying, no, you can't come in here. We're going to have to kill you if you do, because this is, in effect, our, um, 
you know, this is our military uh, operation ground right here, which is exactly what it is. <laughs> so there's, there's just no moral equivalence here whatsoever, and there is no reason to hold anyone responsible for the deaths of innocent civilians except for Hamas there's, and their supporters. Yeah, there's this... Um... You, you may or may not agree with uh, this this quote from Thomas Sowell in, in some ways going back to my earlier point about win-wins. Thomas Sowell has this famous saying that, you know, there are no solutions, there's only trade-offs. And and I, I think in a lot of ways I think about that when I think about these intractable foreign policy problems. And it, it may well be the case that, that both, uh, certainly Hamas wants what's happening now to be happening because they want to mobilize more oh, people to their cause. And they're going to either, um, either, either real innocents lives slaughtered, or they have these, these fake actors that pretend that they're, they're victims of this. But that's the propaganda and fog of war, and it's, it's sometimes a little bit hard to know what's going on. Um, I wonder, like, I have this thought experiment about what would have happened if, if FDR had had a very different policy of, of allowing persecuted Jews in, in Germany and Austria and other places to actually immigrate, immigrate to the United States, which he refused to do, yeah, as, did, as did Europe. Yeah. They were turned away and went back to be thrown into ovens. So I don't know, um, like, I mean, someone, someone has to win in Israel versus Hamas, and it's not just Hamas, it's, it's Israel versus um, the, the radical Muslim world, but but I, I think at this point there is, I don't have a libertarian solution to this. But if if the United States had behaved um, more morally and ethically back in the day, that might have eliminated the need to create Israel, which which frankly wasn't created very well. The the way the British did it sort of de- was designed to fail. It was designed to create all of this conflict. Yeah. Um. So so maybe we should just. Give, give Florida to Israel. <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah, no, I, I mean, you I, and I, I are it's, both. It's too late. It's too late. Yeah, yeah. This is, this is re- retrospective, you know, uh, dream thinking in, in effect. But it doesn't hurt to think about those kinds of things because this is a, this is a good point to bring up when you're defending a, a proper immigration policy, right? Uh, free, freedom-loving people who want to come to the United States should be permitted to come to the United States, regardless of, of their, you know, re- religion, creed, uh, color, ancestry, whatever. Um, and, uh, and those who we have any reason to believe are rights-violating criminals or terrorists or want to do harm or have, you know, really, uh, you know, deadly contagious diseases, obviously. You have to have some kind of a, I advocate in, in immigration for um, ports of entry and, and checkpoints to determine who's coming in. And some people will say, well, you don't have a right to check people coming in. Because... Sort of the Ellis Island system. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. That kind of thing. And, uh, and w- what happens then is everyone knows if you want to come to the United States, you have to come in through a checkpoint so that people can, you know, just take a look and see whether you, you know, look like somebody who's on a terrorist list or something. And if you're not, you come on in and welcome to the melting pot. We'd love to have you here, uh, you know, produce and trade and we'll have a great life together. That's, that's the spirit of America. And that's what we should be doing. And had, uh, had that happened, you know, in, in the forties, uh, a lot of Jews probably would have lived rather than, uh, than, than died. Um, 
And I think the founding of, of Israel, from what I understand of how everything went down, was a bit ham-fisted. I mean, you were dealing with some, you know, so-called international, uh, or, you know, governing organizations that liter- that don't really have any It was a political authority. fix with yeah. all of the perverse incentives and, yeah. and all of the gamesmanship and uh, all of the unspoken interests that were really at play. Exactly. So, um, you know, I, I don't think it was, I don't think things were necessarily done in, in, in the most, you know, clean and pristine way that, that they could have been. But after the Holocaust, the Jews needed some place where they could go and say, hey, we, we can live here and have our rights recognized and protected. And if they didn't have a place to go, they were just going to continue to get slaughtered because not only did the Nazis want to slaughter them, all of the, uh, all, all Muslims who take their religion seriously want to kill Jews because it's in their documents. It's, it's in their founding doc, it's, it's in the founding documents of, uh, of Islam. So you can say, as a lot of Christians do, a lot of, you know, few Christians say, well, in Leviticus, uh, God through Moses says that homosexuals must be killed. So I'm going to kill homosexuals, right? They don't do that because they can say, in effect, I'm not going to take my religion that seriously. They might not say it this way in their mind. And sometimes Christians get upset if you say that they're not taking their religion seriously. They go, yes, I do take it seriously. And I say, well, are you going to take this particular commandment seriously? And they go, well, no, I'm not going to. So you don't take it seriously. It's, it's kind of an either or thing. Um, and it's good that they don't take it seriously because that's a horrible commandment, as are all commandments, because commandments are dictates rather than understandings about the requirements of human life. So I'm just against religion as such. But at the very least, religious people should recognize that some of the commandments and dictates in, the, in their scriptures are uh, uh, just obscenely, horrifically immoral. And, you know, if God tells you to kill your son, you know, uh, Isaac, whom you love, you don't go, okay, you know, and pull out a knife and go to kill him until God says, oh, you know, I was just testing you. This is the Old Testament. So people have to take seriously what the problem here is. Christianity and, and Judaism have horrifically bad things in their documents. The, pro, the, the, the good news is that after the Enlightenment and, you know, the Renaissance and the Enlightenment basically defanged uh, Christians and Jews to some extent. It, it, it convinced them not to take their religion that seriously, but to cherry pick the parts that were reasonably civilized relative to the other parts. And that's what they've done. This is going to be more difficult with the Muslim world because their so-called prophet, uh, Muhammad, was himself a murderous thug who, you know, tortured, raped, beheaded people, etc., etc. Jesus was not like that. Jesus said some things you can take issue with, but he didn't run around cutting people's heads off or not uh, agreeing with, with his religion. So I'm not sure how to deal, you know, uh, uh, how to deal with this situation other than going to real fundamentals. And if you don't mind, I'd like to make yeah. g- go there for a minute. Uh, he, a lot of people today are talking about the history of Israel and who has done what over there and who has a right to the the, the land and the and the Islamic. Um, uh, 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 dictates to, for Muslims to kill Jews and all of that. And these are all, this is all content of history or content of religion. But why do religious people accept the content of their religion? Why do Muslims read the Quran or the Hadith and say, yes, this is true. Uh, 
you know, Allah says, you know, kill Muslim or kill, kill Jews. And because he says that, I know now that this is true. And this uh, brings us to the question of their means of knowledge or what they are treating as their means of knowledge. And religions, all three of the major monotheistic religions, hold that faith, acceptance of ideas in support of which there is no evidence at all, is a legitimate means of knowledge. If, if you accept ideas because there's evidence and logic in support of the ideas, you're accepting those ideas on reason. That's what it means to go by reason. The very reason we have the concept of faith is because some people accept ideas for which there's no evidence. So we need a, we need a concept that denotes that kind of acceptance. And that's what the word faith means. Now, I don't mean when you say I have faith, you know, that my friend will be here at eight tonight because he said he would. That's a, that's a conviction based on r rational assessment of past instances with your friend. And that's not the religious meaning of faith. The religious meaning of faith is I believe in God, not because there's evidence for him, but because I'm going to believe in the absence of evidence. That's what it, that's what it means. Well, here's the problem with faith. It is not a means of knowledge, and everyone on some level knows that this is true. Everyone knows, on some, every thinking adult knows it. Just believing that something is true does not make it true. But if you put it into practice and take it seriously, if faith is a means of knowledge, if me just believing something to be true, just believing that Allah exists and that his word is the moral law, or that God exists and that his word is the moral law on the Christian and Jewish side, if just believing that makes it true, if that is a means of knowledge, if it means that I know that it is the case, this is a nightmare situation. What it means is that if faith is a means of knowledge, anything goes. All I have to do is say, I have faith that Allah wants me to behead you because you're an unbeliever. And if you say, well, you shouldn't do that, and let me start giving you the reasons why. I'd be like, well, I don't need any reasons. I have faith, and faith is a means of knowledge. Ergo, I know that I should do this. Are you telling me I shouldn't act on my knowledge? I know it. It's a true. It's true. It's a, it's a fact of reality that I should do this. It's not negotiable. So what I think, what, what I am trying to get more people to do is take this business seriously. What is our means of knowledge, and how do we know it? And in my view... What makes a civilized society a civilized society is most fundamentally the fact that people recognize that we have one means of knowledge. It's called reason. It operates by perceptual observation, conceptual integration, the laws of non-contradiction non and excluded middle, the Aristotelian laws of logic. This is how we learn what's true and false, right and wrong in, in science and in engineering and in applied technologies and all of that, in medicine, in, in everything else. And we need to bring the same means of knowledge to the moral and, um, and philosophic areas of, of life and kick this nonsense that faith is a means of knowledge out. Because if Christians and Jews want to do battle with Muslims who want to kill Jews and ultimately also want to kill Christians, and their point is, well, look, our God says that you should do that versus our God says that you shouldn't do that. And the way that we know this is through faith. This is just never going to come to an end. But if instead people said there's no existence for God, your rights don't come from God, moral principles don't come from God, then none of this comes from having faith in something that, for which there's no evidence. Instead, it comes from recognizing that there are factual requirements of human life and social coexistence on, on, on this planet. 
And if we can figure out what those things are, that makes morality a science. Oh, what serves human life? Oh, if I treat you as an individual rather than as a member of a group that is against my group, right? And I recognize that you have agency, you have a mind, you have a body, you're capable of producing and trading and all of that. If we recognize each other that way, that's a principle that reason, and reason tells us to do this because it's true that you're an individual and that you have agency and that you're not fundamentally a member of a group, then we can live together pros prosperously and harmoniously. But until people hang up this nonsense that faith is a means of knowledge, we're going to continue with this, this same kind of, uh, of, of just bloody, godforsaken war. It never ends. Thank you for joining me today on Kibbe on Liberty and for being part of our fiercely independent audience. Every week, my organization, Free the People, partners with Blaze TV to bring you this show. My guests bring smart perspectives on everything from current events to timeless philosophical debates. If you like what you hear, go to freethepeople.org KOL and support Kibbe on Liberty so we can continue to produce these honest conversations with interesting people. Now, let's get back to it. Never ends. I have a, I have a friend who's been on this show, um, had a very harrowing experience, a, um, uh, a guy named Khalid. He was in Afghanistan. He was running the classical liberal think tank. He might have actually been, I didn't see him, but that Atlas Network thing is so big. Um, and and he, he is a Muslim, and he is espousing a lot of these um, individual-based moral philosophy views and he, he and his family almost got killed because um, when the Biden administration pulled out of Afghanistan in such a ham-fisted way he wasn't given a warning and and heroic efforts went to get him out so I I do have some Muslim friends that that very much fight against this 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 radical Islam collectivist ideology um, but it is also true that it's, we would be hard to point to a modern example of Christians saying we must wipe out the other side. Yeah. There's a history of that, of course, but it's, it's different, right? Just yeah. practically speaking, it's different. There's a lot more violence coming from the Muslim world. And, and if you deny that you're, you're denying reality. Oh yeah. And there's no, I mean, that, and, and I, and I've seen people deny that it's sort of a rationalistic approach. They're like, Oh, all religions are equally based on these principles. Therefore all are equally bad in all f shapes and forms at all times. And it's just not, not, I mean, the religion itself may be, but the people, the, the, the advocates of the religion, um, I'll go back to taking it seriously versus not taking it seriously. Right. If your religious scripture tells you to kill non-believers and all of them do in some way, shape or form, uh, and you take that seriously, that's really bad. If you take it less seriously, that's better. If you take it really less seriously, that's better. And if you don't take it seriously at all, that's even best, right? So uh, it's, it, it's this scale of taking the horrifically bad uh, commandments of your religion seriously or not. And today, Christians and Jews just don't. I mean, they, they, they don't even come close to it. Uh, they take some of the, the scriptural or, or some of the parables and they, you know, process them in a way that's like, oh, you know, I think we should be nice to people or whatever. Fine. Um, there is one way, however, in which, and I, I should make, this is a pretty important point. There is one way in which today Christians and Jews do take, particularly Christians, uh, a, an aspect of their scripture seriously, and that is in loving your enemies. 
which is a really problematic thing to do if you think about it. So after 9-11, instead of, uh, you know, instead of George Bush saying, we have been attacked by uh, a, a cult of religionists that believes in a God that tells them that, that they should kill us, and they tried to do that, and we are now, because of that, going to go wipe them out, including the state sponsors uh, who made them possible. He didn't do that at all. He immediately said, Islam is a religion of peace. All religions are good religions, et cetera, et cetera. And um, instead of attacking the known religious uh, sponsors, uh, Islamic sponsors of al-Qaeda, we went into Iraq, a relatively secular state, and made war there. Well, that's not where the problem was. The problem was with the Iranian regime and the Saudi Arabian regime who sponsored the attack. And this is all, there's a great article by uh, Andrew McCarthy over at uh, National Review about the Saudis' um, role in that. And I wrote an article uh, about both the Saudis' role and uh, the Iran Iranian role uh, for, for the objective uh, standard that gets into the detailed history of, of their uh, contributions to this stuff. And if I can do the research and find that stuff, the, uh, you know, our, our State Department certainly can. So they knew. They knew what was going on, but, but because religions are supposed to be good and because Christianity tells us to love our enemy, you shouldn't, you know, if you kill your enemy, you're not really loving your enemy. So we went after a state that wasn't really our enemy. Um, and I think, I mean, I don't know all of the machinations in Bush's head as he went through this, but it seems to me that he was just evading the actual facts, because he couldn't take seriously that a religion was bad and he couldn't actually go attack his enemies because Scripture tells him not to. This is a, a slight tangent, but but I think relevant to this. It's, it's fascinating to me that, that we're such good friends with Saudi Arabia, given some of the obvious yeah. evidence that, that they have um, conspired against American interests and, and helped terrorists. Um, and, I, and I would say the same thing about Ukraine in a way. I, I feel like a lot of this is not just about religion, and, and maybe it is, but it's, it's about energy policy. And it's about who has oil, who has gas. And we have this, this, this kind of would get to, to something that, that you would surely agree with me on, that, that if we had a productive and free economy, not just in the United States, but in the West, that embraced energy as a source of life, as a source of prosperity. And instead of doing that, we have all of these sort of anti-energy, it's not just its not just policy, it's ideology, yeah. it's philosophy, it's a religion to be against fossil fuels. Um, and and you, you could immediately stop a lot of these problems. Where does Putin get his power from? Literally from a quasi-monopoly on energy in the region. Yeah. Where does, Saudi Arabia get their power from. It's because uh, we want their oil. At the well, same it's time, not their, it's not their oil because the, all of those, all of the, the discovery of that oil and the pulling it out of the ground and the processing of all that oil is Western corporations that did right. that. And so uh, I, I, I would not even grant that the, the Saudis own that oil. They're the sitting owner, on it. Yeah, they're yeah. sitting on it. The owners of that oil are the people that turned gook into a genuine life-serving value, and that's a huge process to get there. It's not, it, you know, just yeah. because the oil's there doesn't doesn't mean uh, it's a it's a value. Yeah, um, I want to read one more um, tweet 
that you put out. And then I, I just want to talk a little bit. Um, I have, uh, we've talked about uh, having a, a longer conversation, maybe a series of conversations about Ayn Rand's philosophy and your work at the Objective Standard Institute. And we'll at least point people where they can they can learn more. But, but I want to have one more um, question conversation about Israel. And it gets to the, the religious point you were making. Um, this, this is a tweet from you. This atheist is a Zionist, by which I mean a person who recognizes, A, the right of Jewish people to establish and maintain a state in which the government recognizes and protects the rights of Jewish people and non-Jewish people alike so that all can live and be their right fully and unequivocally to defend themselves and their state against attacks, including attacks by bloodlusting jihadist savages who are funded, armed, and trained by the Islamic regime in Iran. Um, is, is your Zionism the same as the history? I, I don't even know the answer to this, but, but, it, but I've always assumed that Zionism was in part a, a, a religion inspired thing to go, go back to the homeland is what, what's your perspective on that? Yeah. So the, I think Zionism has become an, what, what Ayn Rand called a, an anti-euphemism. So it's it, it's a bad sounding thing for a thing that's actually good. Um, Zionism is is one of these concepts that we really don't even need. And I know Jews use it, and and there's you know it's it's, it's been used by Jews positively, and it's by been used by Jew, enemies of Jews negatively. Um, and it's just one of these words that I don't think we we really need that much. But because people are using it, and they're using it as a code word to mean Jew without saying Jew, and that's the way that it's being used today. Um, I think that the, if, if, we're, if we're going to use it at all, we should say that w w what, is, what is the origin of the term? So when Israel is being formed, there are a group of people calling themselves uh, Zionists because it's the land of Zion, and they want to have a place where Jews can live and not be attacked. Well, if that's what the group of people called Zionists w was for, I'm for that. Uh, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Jews have rights just like Muslims have rights and Christians have rights and atheists have rights. So I figured let's just take the bull by the horns. If people are going to use Zionism as, as a code word to mean Jews but make it sound like it's a bad thing, I'll just grab the word and say, I am a Zionist, if, and then it forces people to define their terms. If people use the term and can't define it, you should tell them well, you shouldn't use terms you can't define. So I define it as, and I don't think there's a better definition of it, uh, someone who thinks that Jews should be able to have a place where they can live and have their rights protected. And I think that's a perfectly legitimate uh, definition of it. If somebody has some reason for it to have a different definition, I would be all ears. But even Hamas in their, their, I think it was their 2017 remake of their 2008 charter, they uh, changed the, the word from Jews to Zionists in, in one portion of that for this very reason, so that they could have it baked in there. We want to kill the Jews, but we know that it's problematic to have that stated so explicitly and, and, and openly. So we'll couch it in this, in this term Zionism, which everybody hates. So. If you've made it this far into the show, it means I must be doing something right. Key Beyond Liberty is just one of the amazing products we created for the people. We tell emotionally compelling stories and produce educational videos for the Liberty Curious. 
Our award-winning documentaries personalize all things liberty, independence, creativity, hard work, integrity, and perseverance. After the show, check out our work at freethepeople.org. And if you like what you see, donate to support what we do. That's freethepeople.org. Now back to the show. There's, um, um, I actually thought of something else I want to bring up. Um, going back to uh, Thomas Sowell, I saw this interview. I don't know when it was, but but fairly recent interview where he was trying to explain the persistence um, of anti-Semitism in 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 modern history, and and his take, which almost sounds like a Randian take, is that. Uh, the Jewish people work really hard and are very productive and people resent that. So it's a anti-Semitism in his mind is driven by, by envy. Yeah. One, one of the, one of the worst um, uh, as, aspects of, of human nature and sort of, sort of the anti um, Rand idea of individualism. You yeah. Know, she called it hatred of the good for being good. Yeah. Yeah. What's, what's your, how do you hear that? It sounds like something Rand would say. I, it does. It does. And I think uh, he, he and Rand would agree on that fully. Um, I, I really do think that the hatred against Jews is um, essentially because of their success in living. They're, they're good. As, now, this is not a racial issue. It's a cultural issue, just to be clear here. The Jewish culture has taken um, living well, and using reason to live well very seriously. They have also, on the side, had their faith, which conflicts with that. But one aspect, I'm not an expert on Judaism, but one aspect, as I understand it, of the Jewish religion is that even challenging um, you know, uh, uh, religious texts and religious authorities and the like is welcome and, and encouraged in the Jewish culture. In other words, using reason, questioning things, um, and this, over you know, uh, hundreds and hundreds of years, has created a culture of people that have become very successful because they're using reason to think and challenge and produce and create and trade. And uh, you know, they, for instance, they figured uh, uh, Jews uh, became very good at uh, at charging interest on various uh, um, uh, financial transactions and and the like. And a lot of people, if you're ignorant of economics, you don't see that there's any value in charging interest. You're just making money for free, but you're not making money for free because when you lend money to somebody, you're giving him something that he otherwise couldn't have. And that's an opportunity to use the money for a period of time. And the interest that he pays you is simply the price of being able to use that money for a period of time, right? So it is a trade. Um, and among other you know, uh, mechanisms and, and, uh, and development, economic developments, Jews just became very successful. Because, and I think this is where altruism comes in and, and has a huge, hugely negative uh, impact on, on Jewish people. Because altruism holds that the essence of being moral is not pursuing your values and gaining your values and being successful in life, which is what Jews do, but giving up your values, sacrificing for others, being more like a Mother Teresa or a Jesus. You know, Jesus on the cross is the, the quintessential uh, sacrifice for others. That's the good thing to do. Jews don't have that as much in their religion. And because of that, they were able to embrace a culture of success and achievement and happiness more so 
than Christians were and much more so than, than Muslims. So what you have today and have had for, for many decades is Jewish people are extremely successful by and large, not all of them, but by and large they are. And because people hold success as inherently um, suspicious, because if you were successful, you must have not sacrificed. You must have produced and kept the things that you produced instead of giving them away. You must have been self-interested in your, in your orientation toward living. Um, and because of that, I think it, it's just altruism and the idea that self-sacrifice is good and self-interest is bad has fueled the hatred against Jews and that that's one of the core problems that until that changes in the culture, and we see this, but it's not just Jews. Any businessman who is successful, whether it's Jeff Bezos or, or uh, you know, uh, Bill Gates or or Martha Stewart, they're they're we're, hated. We're, we're supposed to mostly hate Elon Musk today. Yeah, that's he's trying to your, try to keep up. Exactly. So sorry, sorry, I should have mentioned the most hated of all. Um, but but in each of these cases, until and unless they give their money away, like Bill Gates has has been doing, then they get some degree of praise, right? Because um, it's 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 more blessed to give than to receive, just to, to quote the scripture itself. Um, but what's really more blessed, according to a rational philosophy, is to produce and produce and trade and gain value for value by mutual, you know, consent to mutual advantage. And until we as a culture recognize that gaining and keeping and trading and prospering with values is moral and giving up values, either sacrificing yourself to others or sacrificing others to yourself, either way, it's human sacrifice. All human sacrifice is bad because it's human sacrifice. It's, it's not good to sacrifice human beings. It's not good to sacrifice the values or give up the values on which our life depends. It's good to pursue them, produce them, trade them. And until we get past this, I think Jews are always gonna be hated to some extent because they do this other thing. They produce, they think, produce, trade, and prosper. And until that is seen as virtuous, which it is, in fact, um, and insofar as it is seen as, as um, vicious or, or, or immoral, which it is if you embrace uh, altruism, Jews are always going to be a scapegoat. Bigotry against success. Yep. That seems like a great place to stop. Why don't you give us a, a shameless plug for what you're doing at OSI? Uh, maybe you want to mention Prometheus. You have here's your stand. Do it. Sure, sure. So I, I wear three hats in in a sense. I um, uh, I'm the director with my wife of Objective Standard Institute, which is a uh, nonprofit educational organization where we teach the rising generation about the importance of philosophy in general. Uh, the principles of Ayn Rand's objectivism in particular, because we think that those are super important to know, and then related ideas for living a beautiful life and defending liberty on solid ground. So it's really three parts, philosophy, objectivism, and then related ideas for, for living beautifully and defending liberty. Um, we have internships available for anyone uh, aged 18 to 30. You can apply for internships if you want. We have a huge conference coming up, one in, uh, one in Prague in March. They're called, the conferences are called Level Up and another one in Atlanta in June. And if you search Level Up conferences, the, these will pop right up. I encourage anyone and everyone to come to these. They're great. We, we talk about um, the, the theme of all of our conferences, philosophy, so under, under, undergirding ideas for freedom and flourishing. We, we, we recognize those as the master values, and we want to talk with young people about what are the principles and ideas that undergird those values 
and make them possible, make it possible for us to achieve and maintain these things. Um, so that's what those are about. Um, I also am the publisher and uh, editor-in-chief of The Objective Standard, which is a journal of uh, philosophy and culture that we've been publishing since 2006. So we have like 18, 19 years of, of archives. Really, really great articles from a bunch of really great writers all over the world um, there. So that's at theobjectivestandard.com. And then you mentioned um, Prometheus Foundation. I'm the executive director there, and that is essentially a large fund uh, where we have um, funding available for any individuals or organizations that are interested in advancing Ayn Rand's ideas. And if you've got a good idea about how you can help more people to look into and understand Rand's ideas, uh, you can come apply for a grant. And uh, we, we've provided grants to all sorts of organizations from uh, Students for Liberty to Foundation for Economic Education and, and so on and so forth. Also personal grants to, to people to do, you know, just one-up projects, reading groups, things like that. So that's sort of the, the, uh, the, the lay of my land, so to speak. Um, I'm, I've just become active on Twitter. So if your people, if anyone, any of your listeners want to follow me there, I'm going to try to stay active there. And I'm working on some writing projects and other things that we could talk about. But that's the those are the big strokes. Cool. I, I hope we can uh, have some other conversations more about about Ayn Rand's ideas. Anyone that watches this show knows that I that I'm a big fan, and we've we've talked about her before. And I really appreciate you doing this. And uh, let the let the hateful comments begin. <laughs> here, here. Thanks, Thank you. Matt. Thanks for watching. If you liked the conversation, make sure to like the video, subscribe, and also ring the bell for notifications. And if you want to know more about Free the People, go to freethepeople.org.